Jesus Christ. In his name we pray now. Amen. Have a great time with the offering. Okay, I get to release all the kids up to the third grade for the you released. <laughs> and give attention to the word of God in First Thessalonians four, thirteen through eighteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you'll not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain 
until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, I'm going to share a story with you uh, from World War Two. Um, I'm always a little hesitant to share a World War to share a World War Two story with you guys because uh, I know you've heard a lot of them. I'm not sure uh, which ones you have and haven't heard. So if you have heard this one, that's okay. Um, but it is a pr pretty unbelievable story. It's from uh, Elmer Bendener's book, The Fall of Fortresses. And it goes like this, Elmer Bendener was a navigator in a B-17 bomber uh, during World War II. He tells the story of a World War II bombing run over Kassel, Germany, and the unexpected result of a direct hit on their gas tanks. He says, our B-17, the Tondaleo, was barraged by flak from Nazi anti-aircraft guns. That was not unusual, but on this particular occasion, our gas tanks were hit. Later, as I reflected on the miracle of a 20-millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion, our pilot, Vaughn Fox, told me it was not quite that simple. On the morning following the raid, Vaughn had gone down to ask our crew chief for that shell as a souvenir of our unbelievable luck. The crew chief told Bond that not just one shell, but 11 had been found in the gas tanks. 11 unexploded shells where only one was sufficient to blast us out of the sky. It was as if the sea had been parted for us, a near miracle, I thought. Bendener wrote, after, even after 35 years, so awesome an event leaves me shaken, especially after I heard the rest of the story from Bond the crew chief. He was told that the shells had been sent to our armorers to be defused. And the armorers told him that our intelligence unit had picked them up. They could not say why at the time, but Bond eventually sought out the answer. Apparently, when the armorers opened each of those shells, they found no explosive charge. They were as clean as a whistle and just as harmless. But not all of them were empty. One contained a carefully rolled piece of paper. On it was a note scrawled in Czech. The intelligence people scoured our base for a man who could read Czech. Eventually they found one to decipher the note and translated the note read, this is all we can do for you now. Apparently a member of the Czech underground working in a German munitions factory had omitted the explosives and at least 11 of the 20 millimeter shells on his assembly line in the hope of being able to subvert the Nazi war effort. Really an unbelievable story. Um, hope is a powerful thing, and it can make all the difference. Today, as you read in our passage, Paul does not wish for the Thessalonian church to be without hope. 
And so he addresses that need. So let's look at what he says together in our passage. Um, first, of course, we'll always, as always, we'll begin with the context. Um, if you remember from last week, we began the second half of the book of Thessalonians. Um, and this, the first half had to do with uh, Paul kind of celebrating the Thessalonians' faithfulness um, to the gospel and also uh, encouraging them in their faith. And the second half had began Paul's exhortation to continue to uh, live out the faith well. And uh, he also will deal with some doctrinal issues, as we read before. And of course, uh, the church in Thessalonica, the background behind that is in Acts 17. Um, long story short, the Paul and Silas visited the church, or visited that city. They started the church there. Persecution grew so um, intense that they had to leave the city and were not able to return. And so that's why when Timothy returned from there to them, Paul wrote this letter to them. So last week we went through verses 1 through 12. The first part of chapter 4 was divided into three sections. And if you remember, the first section encouraged them to continue obeying the commandments of the Lord, to excel still more. Verses 1 and 2 said, Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as you to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of Jesus. The second part dealt with pursuing holiness there we go, through sexual purity. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 said, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the passage had a lot more to say that. It wasn't just that verse. It was five verses on sexual immorality and purity, and we dealt with that last week, but that was the second part of it. In the third part, Paul wanted to be, the believers to excel still more uh, in their f- love for one another, even more than they already had and were apparently famous for. First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10 says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So he was encouraging them to excel more in their faith, uh, to pursue sanctification and holiness because it's what God desires for the church. Um, And now, Paul is going to address something that almost seems... uh, unrelated or very distinct from the passage that we went through last week. And of course, they're not really unrelated. We'll see in chapter 5 uh, with the day of the Lord um, that is dealt with there that they are very much related to one another. But right now he is dealing with uh, this issue in verses 13 through 18. So let's look in our passage now uh, for today in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We'll start with verses 13 and 14. Uh, actually, I'll start with verse 13. And verse 13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Okay, so the church is uninformed. Some of your translations might say we don't want you to be uh, ignorant. They are missing information, very important information, not necessary for salvation necessarily, but it does 
um, affect their everyday lives and their hope. And again, it says, we don't want you to be uninformed brethren. Okay, and we talked about this last week. Brethren does not just mean men. It means men and women. That word for adelphoi can be understood as men and women. Brothers, brothers and sisters, more accurately there. So it's not just for men, but he says, brethren, about those who are asleep. Okay, and we, you're probably familiar with this uh, metaphor here, those who have fallen asleep. It's a metaphor for death. So Paul uses asleep to describe their statuses as believers who have died. Okay, and we obviously see that as a temporary thing, but he is communicating this doctrine uh, that he is about, that he goes through through this entire message, through this metaphor of being asleep. And I like to use examples whenever uh, I'm explaining these metaphors, and I think of the story of Jesus and Lazarus because he ta- uses this metaphor of sleep also. So Jesus and Lazarus, and Lazarus, of course, was the brother of Mary, the woman who cleaned Jesus' feet with her hair and the expensive ointment. Um, and it says in John 11, 11 through 14, This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus, so Jesus is speaking, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, that's not the end of the passage. He keeps going. Um, Lazarus eventually is resurrected. But it's, it's understandable, the confusion that can come out of this metaphor. But it's clear here, and it's used elsewhere, that asleep is a metaphor for death. Uh, and indeed here too, Paul is speaking about people who have died. Uh, they very likely have died because of the persecution they may have been experiencing in Thessalonica. It's intense, and we know in Second Thessalonians it gets even more intense. But what's important here is his use of this term sleep. It's this kind of, it's death, but it's temporary. That's the idea behind it. It's temporary. Uh, Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. He brings him to life. Okay, so that's why Jesus describes him as asleep. All right, so let's, we'll move on. The problem here is that they are grieving without hope. That's the problem that Paul wants to address. Uh, one note I want to make is that the problem is not that they are grieving, right? Okay, so when Paul is not saying that they shouldn't be grieving, indeed he's saying they should be grieving, but with hope. The problem is they're grieving without hope. Uh, the Bible does not condemn sorrow when it comes to the loss of a loved one. Indeed, that response is appropriate. And again, an example from Paul himself, Philippians 2, 25-27, says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. So if Epaphroditus would have died, Paul would have felt extraordinary sorrow, incredible grief, even though Epaphroditus had salvation, even though his future was secure in Christ. Okay, 
I just want to make that distinction, not go on a rabbit trail too long here. But the appropriate response, of course, to the death of a loved one is, is certainly grief. Now, as we see here, grief with hope is what we're aiming for. Um, again, the problem is that Paul does not want them to grieve as do the rest with no hope. Uh, when I was young, uh, I asked my mother, uh, we were driving in the car, and I asked her, where does cancer come from? And she was driving, so she couldn't really answer it that well. She kind of said, passingly, well, it, I'm not sure. Maybe it comes from genes. She meant human genes. I thought she meant blue genes, because <laughs> I didn't know about human genes. So for a long time, I did not wear blue jeans. <laughs> also, when I was young, I had my favorite hymn was All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. The line goes, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let angels prostrate fall. Let angels prostrate fall. I knew every word in that verse except for one, but I knew a word that was very similar to it. Minus the R, so that's what I would sing. When I learned what prostrate meant, uh, I was happy to sing it appropriately. <laughs> Having the right information and is, is affects how we live and how we behave and, and how we hope. Here, the brethren are uninformed... And it seemed to be specifically, they are uninformed, in verse 14 we'll see, uh, about those who had died, that they were going to indeed rise again with Jesus. They're afraid that they would miss out on the return of Christ. And you have to imagine the kind of impact that this lack of understanding had on the church. Uh, if you were unsure about what happened to the dead, whether or not they rose again, whether or not they were going to miss out, uh, how would that affect how you live? And so, Paul is eager to give them the correct understanding of what is happening. So the misunderstanding was a big deal, so Paul takes time to address it. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, will God, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Okay, so we see an if-then statement there. Um, it's not an if-then statement of uncertainty. It's an if-then if statement of certainty. Okay, so if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, which you do, right? It's like if I said, if you guys came to church today, which you did, you'll hear a sermon, okay? So it's... a if then statement of certainty, if we believe that Jesus died, which you absolutely do, then you also should believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They go together. Um, <coughs> so here we see that word asleep again. The dead will not remain dead. They will not miss out on the return of Christ. Instead, God will bring those who are in Jesus with him. So the comparison that's being made is Jesus died and rose again. And so believers will die, but they will one day rise again. 
And they will rise again. Who will rise again? Specifically those in Jesus. Okay, that prepositional phrase, in Jesus, in, is important here. Some of your translations say in, some say through. It, It means together with. It's a statement of accompaniment. Okay, it's a statement of unity, union. We are united with Christ, not even death, the great divider, can divide those who are in Christ. It's a statement of assurance. If you are in Jesus, who is the life, then you will be in his resurrection as well. Jesus says this about himself in John, right right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. So the same passage we were reading before in John 11. It says, John 11, uh, 25, 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So all it's, a, it's an important thing to remember. If you've lost someone you dearly love, a brother or a sister, a mother or a father, a grandparent, a friend or a child, and they are in Christ, then they are united with the resurrection and the life. There's nothing that can separate them from that. And just as Jesus resurrected from the grave, so will they, and so will you. You and I are united with the one who died and came up out of the grave to life. And these Thessalonians are united with him as well. And that's Paul's point here. So next we'll see more specific statements about those already dead uh, with Christ's return. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. All right, so Paul says by the word of the Lord here, um, a common phrase in the New Testament is he's, I think he's saying here this is a special revelation to him. This is a truth that is coming to him from God. Um, And what has come to him from God? Well, there there seems to be an order of things. He says that uh, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, they will be actually raised to the Lord first. Then those who are alive, when the Lord returns, uh, will will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And of course, this would have been an encouragement to the Thessalonians. Not only will the dead not remain dead, not only will they not miss out on the return of the Lord, but they will be raised first. They will receive, receive precedence to those who are alive. Notice Paul says, we who are alive. Okay, So I think in the New Testament we see that an expectation that the Lord very well could return uh, in their lifetime. And uh, I know Ken has taught on this word eminence before when he's teaching the book of Revelation. Okay, that eminence means that it doesn't necessarily have to happen in my lifetime, but I should be expecting it. It could happen at any time. And so that's, uh, that's how the believers here seem to understand it. That's how Paul and the writers of the New Testament seem to understand it. And so that's how they lived as if Christ was going to return at any time. And finally, on this verse, verse 15, Paul uses the word uh, parousia, the coming of the Lord. Parousia 
uh, I always get confused on how to pronounce that word. It's a Greek word that refers to the second coming of Christ. You, you might have heard it before. Per- parousia. Um, and it refers to the second coming of Christ. But what you may not have known is that this word was used to describe the visits of Roman emperors to uh, provinces or to cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, when they would visit the cities and they would establish their sovereignty or authority over the city. They were coming to visit those cities. And what would happen is that when the Roman emperors would come, would come a delegation of officials would come forth to meet the emperor and to greet him. Okay? So they had the honor of being the first ones to receive the emperor into their city. And so what I think Paul is doing here is he is painting a picture uh, of what is happening with this word of uh, parousia, uh, that just like the Roman delegation that comes forth when the emperor visits, whenever the, our king returns, the dead will rise first, and they will have the honor and privilege of greeting him and receiving him. So the dead will in Christ will be the first to receive the returning king. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so again we see at the end of this verse that the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul has thoroughly answered the concerns of the Thessalonians. The dead will rise. They are in Christ. They are united with him in his resurrection. Just as he lives, so will they. And then in this verse, you might recognize a lot of the language that's being used for the return of God. Uh, he'll, he'll return with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, uh, and with the t- who I assume is, uh, is, is Michael from June 9, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. But he's using a lot of language we might be familiar with because we've been seeing in Revelation like with the trumpets, how there are trumpets associated with the return of Christ. And we see it elsewhere, too, this language, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So the reason I include that verse is just for us to see that when the Lord returns, he will return. Uh, It will be a very uh, obvious, authoritative, dramatic, forceful return. He's returning for his saints. Okay, so this passage, as a lot of you know, has to deal with the idea of the rapture and uh, obviously the second coming and when will the rapture happen? Does Corinthians talk about the last trumpet? First, so I, my intention in teaching this passage is not to focus on when all these things will be happening. Okay, and so I intentionally want to focus on what, uh, on the fact that Jesus Christ will be returning, and He will be returning for His saints. Um, it can be a long rabbit trail going on on the, on the other things. So that is, uh, that is going to be my focus for today. But this is the passage that you will see 
uh, the term rapture, uh, where it comes from. Verse 17, uh, now that Paul has established what would happen to those who are asleep, he addresses what happens to those who are alive during the Lord's return. And it says in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, so this verse right here is where we get the word rapture from, that um, caught up. The Greek word is harpazo, uh, but the Latin word that was used to translate and understand this is rapturo. Okay, that's where we get rapture from. And it means to be caught up, to be taken up, to be snatched away um, suddenly. And uh, we've heard that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so... The, uh, those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so after the Christians who have died rise up to meet Christ, suddenly the Christians who are living will also be brought up to meet him in the air. And that is just an incredible uh, vision to me. Uh, it sounds very intense that we're going to go up to meet the Lord in the air. What in the world will that be like uh, can we fly in heaven, maybe? I don't know. Of course, that's not the point of this verse. As we saw from the passage, uh, from this passage, uh, the Lord will come for those whom are in Christ, the dead and the living, and there's an order of things. And this incredible thing will happen when the Lord returns. I think a very important part of the verse is at the very end, so we shall always be with the Lord. It's not necessarily the place that we go to uh, that is nearly as important as who we are going to be with. We are united with Christ. Death cannot separate us from that unity with Christ. and We will be with him forever. Yeah. Amen. Well, not amen. We got to go to verse 18. Uh, finally, verse 18, Paul gives us one last exhortation. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul wishes for the believers to encourage one another with these words. With what words? Well, with the fact that the dead will not stay dead, but Jesus will return and they will rise again. Their lives, their ministry was not in vain. And even, not even death can separate them with the union they have in Christ. And so he wishes for these words to be a source of comfort and encouragement to the believers. And so the believers in Thessalonica can live accordingly. So that you can live according to the fact that when you die, Christ will come and you will rise again. And everyone that we know that is in Christ that has died, that is what is going to happen to them. Okay, well, let's think about this passage and what it means for us. The first thing that I want to focus on is that Jesus is going to return. Okay, that is established here. He's going to return. And uh, what we see in the letter of the Thessalonians is a faith that reflects that they believe this that they will see Jesus and they will see him soon. Uh, 
it is easy for us to think that this day is very far away for each one of us. Well, at least if you're young. So it is easy for us to think and difficult for us to grasp that we could see the Lord any time, any day. And do our lives reflect that knowledge and that belief that Christ is going to return and we will see him soon? Second point, Jesus will raise us from the dead and we will be with him forever. So Paul has made it clear in this letter that as Christians, we have a great and phenomenal hope that death is not the end, that our Lord will return like he said, and then that we will rise and be with him forever. And that should be a hope that directs our lives and directs our faith. So not even death can bring the un- break the union we have with Christ. And then finally, we should be comforting each other with the hope that we have in Christ. For the Thessalonians, that would have been an extraordinary comfort to know that the, those who have died and then they who might die from persecution are not missing out on the return. They are not going to stay dead. They will be resurrected when our Lord returns. This is going to happen, right? You can't stop what's coming. It's coming. Uh, And I hope you have thought about that. I hope you have thought about that. One day, you will die. And it will happen soon. And you will meet Christ, and it will happen soon. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that even though we are sinners... And even though we have sinned against God, that Jesus Christ, being God, died on our behalf. And that's an unusual and strange thought that someone else could die for our sins. That's what the Bible teaches, that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for us. He died on our behalf, and he took the punishment of sin in our place, so that we could be forgiven of sin. But the good news is that he he rose again. It didn't stop there. Death was not the end. He rose again, and if you are in Christ, if you are in the life, if you are in the resurrection, if you believe the gospel, this gospel, then you can know the eternal life that he offers as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for the extraordinary hope that you have given to us, Lord that we can live life with hope, that we can know that those who have passed on, Lord, and they are in you, that death has not broken that unity that they have with you, that they will be with you after death, that they will rise again and they will live. And that's a great comfort to each one of us uh, because we love them. But it's also a comfort to each one of us because we know when we will die that that same thing will happen to us as well. And we are so thankful for that. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live with the knowledge, God, that we are going to see you soon. With the knowledge that we, Lord, have an eternal and extraordinary hope 
that is certain, that can be trusted, and that is that Jesus will return and that he has risen from the grave and we will as well. And guide us and, and uh, help us in your spirit to encourage one another in this good news. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.